Good afternoon, brethren. I've got to get all hooked up or unhooked. Dylan comes up here or over there and hooks me up with the thing, but then I have to unhook myself from my hearing aids. I sometimes kid people about my plastic leg, you know, but I don't really have a plastic leg. Everything else is a problem. I do appreciate your prayers for my wife. Many of you have mentioned that, and I deeply appreciate that. She would love to have been here today. She planned to be here today and talked about it last night, but she woke up this morning and her legs were just like noodles. They're just, she took this infusion of chemotherapy Thursday, and it sometimes hits two or two days later, sometimes three or four, but it hit her today, and she could hardly stand up. So she felt that she could not come today. But please keep praying for her, and uh, it's uh, I do appreciate it very much. It puts a certain amount of stress on me. I think I've been a little bit weaker because of just being concerned for her and losing sleep at times and other things like that. But I did make a program the other day, and grateful I was able to get through that. And uh, I do want to keep going as long as I possibly can, so I'll appreciate your prayers uh, for me as well. We have a wonderful team here who's helping me, and I do want to thank them. I want to thank, uh, first of all, Jessica for the special music. Uh, very nice and appreciate that. I want to thank Mr. Wakefield for his fine sermonette. He's a new member of our top executive team, and for those of you who don't know, uh, we just recently appointed him to the board. So the board of the entire church consists of Mr. Ames and Dr. Vanell and Mr. Wakefield and me, and we're very grateful to have a man of his caliber and his dedication here among us in the headquarters team. He's so very kind and very intelligent and very helpful. Uh, one of our intelligent young men, uh, who's no slouch himself, wife Saselka, he said, Mr. Mr. Wakefield is the smartest man in this building. That's what he said. And uh, he's a confused young man, of course. Mr. <laughs> Mr. Ames and I went over in the corner and began to cry quietly, you know, after we heard that, because this other guy was the smartest man in the building. I'm kidding. No, he, he's smarter than any of us in certain ways, in many ways. And Mr. Ames is certainly very uh, smart and smarter than me in many ways. And Dr. Winnale is smarter than all of us in certain parts of history and uh, things that he is smart in. And I know that the, both Josh's, Josh Beatty and, and uh, Josh Penman, are both about a hundred times as smart as I am in computers, as some of you know. And uh, we all have our strengths, and we're very grateful. But I am very grateful, and I want to say this before all of you. I do thank God nearly every day for the love, the warmth, the loyalty, the dedication of the fine headquarters team. I am grateful for that. And uh, I do thank God for it. And I could not begin to do the work. I never have done the work. We've always had wonderful help from the beginning. We had Mr. Carl McNair, Mr. Apartian, and uh, we had, of course, uh, Mr. Uh, very quickly, uh, Mr. Uh, O'Gwen, and other very outstanding people came along, and then Mr. Ames and Mr. Winnell and so on. We've had a very, very fine team. So we could not do the work without them, and all of you were on that team. And so I'm very grateful and thank all of you for it. We are moving forward, and God is blessing the work very, very much, and I do thank God for that. We have had a lot of blessings recently, 
uh, our income has been up at six and a half percent, not a big jump, but certainly a very fine increase for this time of year. And we're grateful for that. We're also grateful for the increase in attendance. The church attendance is running about 8 to 9% increase around the United States and most of the world, and we're very grateful for that. And I think Mr. Ames could have announced this. He's always so kind. He may have saved this one for me, but uh, I double-checked with Mr. Uh, uh, Pyle the other day, and in fact, I hope Dr. Uh, well, I'll call him Dr. Wakefield uh, we, uh, Rod McNair knew my little story, so we gave Mr. Wakefield a fake doctor's certificate here. So we've, we've, we've uh, given him a doctorate because he's so smart. And But anyway, I hope he doesn't get mad at me and Mr. Ames. But I did talk to Mr. Pyle, and we were going to sign on for 30 days trial with the ION Network, which is a very wonderful network which will give us thousands and thousands of additional responses every every year in our telecast. We've already known that. We had to go off that a few years ago, and we've seen even more since thinking about it, how helpful it would be. So we've been offered opportunity to get back on that, but I spent a little bit of extra money to get to lock it in. So it isn't just for 30 days. It's all the time. They can't have someone in come in and grab it out from under us. But at any rate, we're locked in on the ION network, and we'll be starting in a few weeks on dozens and dozens of top stations across the entire United States. So God has blessed us with that. He's blessed us with some additional income and other income we know is on the way to take care of it. And we are very thankful to God. We are going to have a lot more impact on the world just within the next few months. Also, Mr. Soselka and his fine team have done a wonderful job. They're just getting going, but we're going to have a lot more impact all around the United States and all over the world on the Internet. And we're already beginning to greatly increase the impact on the Twitter and other parts of the of the uh, uh, in, in the Internet that we're using. And, of course, we're very grateful for the way that's going, the whole thing. And we're already beginning to have more impact and more response. So I'm grateful for what Christ is doing it. He's certainly not, we're not doing it. He has to do it. A lot of us are older and uh, none of us are great superstars. Christ is the superstar. They had that crazy musical called Jesus Christ Superstar, you know, which was kind of blasphemous the way they went at it. But he is the superstar. He calls the weak of the world, but he uses us to do a work. And we're going to do a powerful work before this is all over. And I think most of you know that. It's already beginning to happen, and things are beginning to speed up in prophecy even this year. The work is beginning to speed up, and we can pray, and I hope we all will pray unitedly, that God Almighty will begin to intervene and pour out His Spirit, and more people can also be healed. And that will be so encouraging if God begins to heal people all up and down the East Coast, all across the United States and around the world. That he will pour out, as he's poured out these other things, the gifts of healings, more and more as we walk with him. Well, brethren, we're approaching Passover, as Mr. Ames commented. And I want to have us go back to ask this questions, which we've done before. But I'm going to come at it from a little different way today, which I hope can be helpful for you who hear it today. And you, brethren, around the world who will be hearing this sermon, most of you, after the Passover. It's something we ought to be doing all through the year. I try to do it at least once a week. 
All of you need to take inventory, perhaps every Sabbath day, when you can have extra time to think, to study, to meditate, to pray. Back in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, turn there if you would. Second Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Paul writes, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Prove yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? The question is, is Christ in you? And the question I want to ask all of us today, are you a real Christian? Are you a genuine Christian? That's what each of us needs to ask ourselves. Are we really Christian? Is Christ in us? What Christ? What are you talking about? Well, most of you know this scripture, and a lot of them I'm going to give, but I want to review some key things you really need to be thinking about, because the world, and as Mr. Wakefield pointed out about Satan's little trick of deceptions, he's got all kinds of ways of messing up people's minds. People in the world talk about Christ. My wife met a fellow at the doctor's office the other day, an older man who's sentimental and gave her one of these Christian magazines. And all it talks about is giving your heart to the Lord. And I don't want to mention the name of the evangelist, but he's very famous. And it's just sentiment all the way through. I looked through it once in a while. It's good to see what they're saying. And they're just very sincere, I think, most of them, but just very sentimental. And all they talk about is sentiment and just give your heart to the Lord and love the Lord. But what Lord? What does the Lord teach? What is his plan? What is his purpose? They don't know that. And they do not believe in keeping the commandments. They say they're nailed to the cross. They say when you die, you're going to heaven and all that kind of thing. Back in John, let's see what the Lord is we're talking about. The real Lord, the real Christ. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And when you mention here the Word, in the beginning was the Word, most of you know the Greek word here is logos, L-O-G-O-S. It can be and often is translated spokesman. The spokesman or the revelatory principle, the one who spoke for God the Father. This obviously was Jesus Christ, as you read the passage. He was in the beginning. All things were made through him, and without him, the one who became Jesus Christ, nothing was made that was made. When you see the mountains and the valleys, the vast oceans, the sunset, the beautiful sunrise in the morning, the beautiful trees that Mr. Ames was talking about all over this city, a beautiful little child, a beautiful young woman, Whatever it is that you think is beautiful, who made that? God Almighty did, but he did it through Jesus Christ. He did it through Jesus Christ. Everything was made by him. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The people did not understand Christ, even when he came. A lot of people think, well, if Christ were here, everybody would be converted. No, they wouldn't. What did they do to him when he came? They killed him. They didn't accept him. In verse 11, or verse 10, let's say, He was in the world. Christ came into the world, and the world was made through him. He made the world. He made the sun, the moon, the stars, everything. And the world did not know him. He came to his own, the Jewish people, and his own did not receive him. So he was not accepted by the world. 
to set us the example. So I think at the beginning of our prayers, we might thank God that we are here on this earth, to thank God that he made the beautiful earth, that he made all of us human beings in his image, and thank God for Jesus Christ. And one thing we can be thankful for and should thank God, really, when you think it all the way through, one of the wonderful things Jesus did, in addition to dying for us and allowing his body to be broken, that by his stripes we were healed, he came in the human flesh fully tempted in all points like as we are. He had the pulls to kill, to steal, to commit adultery, to do all those things. Yes, he did. The pulls were there. He was fully human. But he came into this earth to set us the example. And boy, when you start thinking about it, he was the example. And that's a wonderful thing. We had one human being who was fully human who did it and did it the right way all the way through. And we can read and read and reread, and we should go over and over that. And one thing I thank God for personally, and I don't deserve it, because I wasn't any smarter or better than anyone else, but somehow God got me in the situation where I was teaching the freshman Bible class in Ambassador College longer than any other human being in this age. And I got to go over and over and over the four Gospels, explaining and expounding them. And that's been a wonderful help to me ever since. But I still go over the Gospels. You can't ever get enough of them. You keep learning new things all the time. To read about the Word, Jesus Christ, He is the example. Are you really Christian? Well, better start reading about Jesus Christ. Feed on Christ. Think in your mind, what would Jesus really do? You've heard me say that before, not just what would Jesus do, like the kids had these WWJD bracelets. I often put in the word, really, what would Jesus really do? A lot of the kids that had those bracelets, in fact, virtually all of them, had no idea about the true Christ. They didn't know that he was the God who said, let there be light, and there was light. You read back in 1 Corinthians 10. Look it up or write it down in your notes if you want to. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4. The Christ, the rock of ancient Israel, the one who spoke to ancient Israel, the one who spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it says, that rock was Christ. Christ was the one who spoke to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Christ was the one who spoke to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David. He was their God. Who spoke the Ten Commandments? Jesus Christ did. Who gave the Sabbath? Jesus Christ did. Who gave the Holy Days? Jesus Christ did. Who explained to ancient Israel in the letter of the law, the whole way of life? Jesus Christ did. Christ is to live his life in you. That's what you've got to constantly think. Am I living my life as Jesus Christ did? That's what a true Christian does. In Matthew 4 and verse 4, you all know that, but turn there. I'm going to read something else nearby. Here's the first words that we find Jesus actually talked about in detail. And when he came in the human flesh, as the Bible records it at least. So he was tempted by the devil, and the devil tried to tempt him. The first answer he gives in verse 4 It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And my brethren, you've got to think this through. Dr. Winnale wrote a wonderful booklet on that, the Bible, fact or fiction. 
And we need to have other articles and other booklets proving and proving and reproving the Bible. This book is the inspired revelation from God. There are dozens of specific prophecies in here talking about specific cities like Tyre and Ashdod and all these other cities in the, Bi- in the Bible that these things happen to those cities, those nations. God specifically said he would give our modern peoples of Israel the gates of their enemies. And he's done that. And the indication is, some have said that God said he'd take them all away. He doesn't say that in the Bible, but he does indicate he'll be taking these things away in general. And now they're all gone, except two. Only Gibraltar and the Falkland Islands remain. The Straits of Hormuz are gone. The Simonson's base controlling the sea route around South Africa is gone. Singapore and the Malacca Strait, a tremendously important strait. I know that's not familiar to a lot of you, but you've heard about it. Read about it. It's very important. It's gone. We don't control it anymore. The Panama Canal is gone. We don't control it anymore. Suez is gone. One by one, God has taken away every one of those sea gates, about ten of them, and now only two are left, and both of them are in danger, as you've heard me explain. These things are specific. The God of heaven, the God that gives us life and breath, is doing these major things, and he is right now backing up his word by bringing down the American and British-descended peoples because we have turned away from him. And he says, if you despise my commandments and my statutes, I will do this and this and this to you, and I will break the pride of your power. Well, one of the ways he's breaking the pride of our power, of course, is taking away all these great sea gates, among many other things. Have we despised him? Well, right now in this so-called Christian state of North Carolina, they're getting ready to vote on this amendment about men marrying men. And the indication is the homosexual lobby is whipping things up so much that they'll vote it down. That is the amendment stating that marriage can only be among the opposite sex, men and women. And our whole country is turning that one state after the other is voting in, uh, voting in favor of uh, uh, same-sex marriage, as they call it. That's not marriage. That's an abomination. It's a perversion. But they're letting it come into law, and they're going to start persecuting any of us who try to talk out against it. They will. You'll see that. I'm not afraid to talk, but I don't want to put it on the front page of our magazine necessarily or make a broadcast on it so we get kicked off our television stations prematurely. You don't want to, you know, cut off your nose to spite your face, as they say, whatever. So we do need to use wisdom. But we're going to have preaching the truth, and we'll get in trouble for it. We despise the God of heaven who gives us life and breath, our nation. We despise the Bible. I mean that. That's the way we're going. Most of you know that if you read a lot of stuff, it's getting to be more and more that way where the super liberals who control our country, they get absolutely agitated and hysterical if someone comes along and talks about the God of the Bible and what he actually says. Boy, they don't like that. Man loves darkness rather than light, Jesus said, because his deeds are evil. So that's what's beginning to happen. This is the key. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And my brethren, when you think about that, that is the key to everything. What is a true Christian, as I've said, is covered by that, because Christ inspired the Bible. 
And the Bible all the way through the Old Testament shows us things. And then Christ came to magnify the laws, it said. And it, in the New Testament, he said, they magnified God's law and made it all the more strict and so on. It's the whole way of life, the whole relation of man and woman, each place in life that God intends to make us genuinely happy. The meaning of marriage, it's in the Bible. They have to discuss this. No, they don't have to discuss this. It's all laid out in the Bible, but they don't want the Bible. They don't believe the Bible. The idea of abortion, killing unborn babies. Of course, when you see the laws of God and the principles and examples in the Bible, that was an, would be an abomination, very clearly so. Also, the idea of men marrying men. God would call and does call that kind of thing an abomination. In ancient Israel, he had people stoned for that. He doesn't mess around with that, and he will not again in tomorrow's world. Men marrying men, that's an abomination. The Bible, they're having a discussion about that. I think it's just tomorrow or sometime this weekend, they're having a public meeting and having people come to discuss it. Discuss what? If they believed the Bible, there would be nothing to discuss. It's not some little nebulous idea that is hard to find in the Bible. It's from one end of the Bible to the other that homosexuality is a damnable thing. It's a perversion. And if followed to the logical extreme, there would be no more people. We would all be gone. There would be no more men and women getting married and having children. Satan would have achieved his ultimate purpose. He would simply wipe out the human race. And if there are no women around, he wiped them out. All of us men would be so mad we'd kill each other. And then the world would, would end up. Satan has a way of doing things. I don't think he'll do it that way, but you know what I mean. God's way makes sense, but they don't like to admit that. Church government. Some of our love brethren, and we love them. They're nice people, but they want to discuss and talk about as though it's an uncertain thing about church government. Well, again, read the book. What does the God of the Bible tell us? Hebrews 13, verse 5, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What kind of church government would Jesus Christ direct as the God of the Old Testament? He chose, told Moses to select or to appoint people to offices. All the way through the Old Testament, whenever God's government was followed, they did it that way. Never did they vote. Never did they have any political speeches. It was always by appointment. You come to the New Testament. Jesus Christ, Luke, I think it's Luke 8, 12, 6, 12, I guess. He appointed the 12 apostles. Then you go back to the book of Titus. I think it's Titus chapter 1, about verse 5. And Paul told Titus the young evangelist, to appoint, not vote in politic, but appoint elders in every city. And all the way through the New Testament, it's very clear that's what they did do. So Old Testament, it was government from the top down, was hierarchical government. In the New Testament, always hierarchical government, no exception. And in tomorrow's world, what is it going to be like? Well, again, you read about it. Christ has already appointed David as the king over Israel, and under David, the twelve apostles were already appointed as, you know, each one of them over a particular tribe. And following those other examples, you know that the whole thing will be continued. It will be government by appointment, not by politicking, not by, you know, saying, I'll promise you this and I'll promise you that, like our politicians do today in the world. The one who makes the biggest promises usually wins, no matter how much it's going to cost us in taxes. And in the church groups who follow that, 
Well, they do it a little different way, but basically they have to select the ones that's the most popular and centrist and so on. And they can't be sure it's going to be God's way or it's going, God's going to bless it, I should say, because it's not God's way. It has never been God's way, Old Testament, New Testament, or tomorrow's world. It is not going to be God's way. The Bible is very clear. It is the mind of God in print. In Matthew 5, now we're in Matthew 4. Let's turn over to Matthew 5. Here is what we, of course, call the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus didn't call it that, but since he gave it on top of a big hill, apparently overlooking the Sea of Galilee, why they call it the Sermon on the Mount. He said in Matthew 5, verse 17, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. Well, these were all Jews. They knew what he meant by that. The law meant virtually the whole way of God, the Ten Commandments, the statutes, everything that God gave. And the prophets were the prophecies of the Bible and the lessons of life there. I did not come to destroy, but to fill to the full. Fulfill does not mean to do away with. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle, one little crossing of an eye, a T, I should say, or dropping dotting of an eye will not pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Every bit of it's going to be in force. Notice verse 19, perhaps is the most clear verse of all. These are the words of Jesus Christ. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least, which one is least? The world thinks the Sabbath commandment is least, usually. You pick on any of them, doesn't make any difference. Whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments, plural, and teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Well, frankly, the rest of the Bible shows if they really continue to do that and never repent, they won't even be in the kingdom of heaven. But they're going to be called least. But he that does and teaches them, so you've got to do them, obey them, and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Then he goes on and shows, as you just skimmed down here, that your righteousness has got to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. You're not only not to murder, you're not to have the attitude of hate, which is the attitude to murder. And in verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, verse 28, whoever looks on a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So he makes the commandment all the more binding. You're not even to go around with lust in your heart because you would eventually probably act on that lust if you could. And if you go around with hate in your heart, if you had a convenient time, you might kill a person. You might act on that hate in your heart. You're not to even have that hate in your heart in the first place. Does that do away with God's laws? Of course not. It makes them far, far more binding. They're wonderful what is a true Christian then? It's one who teaches and follows what Jesus Christ says. Whoever does and teaches them, that is the least of the commandments, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So you have to understand that. That is what Christianity is all about, that whole way of life. Remember, brethren, back in Galatians 2.20, my favorite scripture that I haven't mentioned for a few weeks, perhaps. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I haven't preached for a few weeks. It usually comes out. But Galatians 2.20, write it down. Memorize it if you haven't done so. It is perhaps the best one verse 
explanation of true Christianity in the Bible. You need the whole Bible, don't get me wrong. But just in one verse, what is true Christianity? The Apostle Paul wrote, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I. And the Greek word there is literally ego, E-G-O, the old selfish self, not the, not the I, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. That's what a true Christian is. Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, some will say, oh, you can't do it in the flesh. No, he says you can. Uh, the life I live in the flesh I live, but the faith of the Son of God, not just faith in, but the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is the best one-verse definition of Christianity in the Bible. Some people say, well, the best is just believe in the Lord or give your heart to the Lord. No, give your heart. What does that mean? You have to go round and round proving what that means. How do you give your heart to the Lord and which Lord? If you follow Christ and Christ, the Christ of the Bible lives his life in you, then you have a whole pattern, a whole way of life exemplified because he was the light that God sent into the world. And he set us an example that we should follow in his steps. First Peter 2.21. So we have to understand that. That is a wonderful definition. And we need to explain how that affects everything. Would Christ be a homosexual? Well, what did the Christ of the Old Testament do? He absolutely destroyed those men in Sodom and Gomorrah when they got involved in that. What did the Christ of the New Testament do? He inspired, of course, the Apostle Paul to describe homosexuality as an abomination in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and a whole section there is wherever it was there and all kinds of places in the New Testament back in, uh, since I commented on that, I'll turn so you can find it uh, in 1 Corinthians uh, 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. You can be any kind of homosexual. None of them, he says. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards. God does not appreciate drunkards either. Nor revilers, those who just say hateful things about those in authority. Nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. He says, yet some of you were that way in the past, but now you're sanctified. You're cleaned up, you see, because you've accepted Christ, and Christ lives his life in you. So you might have been some of those things in your past, but when you're converted, you quit it. You stop it. Why? Because Christ lives his life in you. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can overcome that. You can overcome anything. As Paul said in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ. That's the point. The whole thing revolves around that one key fact that helps you to have the power of Christ. And that's what true Christianity is all about. Going to Colossians now. Let's get the flavor of true Christianity as we think about the Passover. And I want to ask you this question again. Think about it. Can you say with great happiness and joy and faith, I am a Christian? 
Brethren, as we get toward the end of this age, fewer and fewer people even want to say that. You're going to be persecuted by the Muslims. You're going to be persecuted by the worldly people. Can you say and be thrilled to say, I am a real Christian. I am a Christian. I want to have Christ living in me. Let's let that be our mantra. I am a real Christian and try to live up to that with all our being and go above and beyond crying out to God to help us live up to that, to have us have Christ live his full life in us. Go to Colossians now, chapter 3, verse 1. Paul was inspired here to write, If then you were raised with Christ, if you've come up out of the watery grave of baptism, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. In other words, you're thinking about what is Christ concerned with? Well, Christ is concerned with us keeping God's commandments. Christ is concerned about us building and allowing God through the Holy Spirit within us to build his righteous character so he can prepare a people for God, so he can prepare us to be those kings and priests to assist Christ in ruling the whole world and bringing peace to the world because we have built within ourselves by the power of God's Spirit, by Christ within us, that way of life. We can't do it by pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We have to do it with the help of Almighty God. And God does it through Christ. Christ is always the one who's dealt with the world for God the Father. So set your mind on things above, not on things on the world. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. If you're really baptized and you went into the watery grave, you died. And brethren, if you did were correctly baptized, you should have at that moment, you might not have thought of it that way. We should have explained it more thoroughly. We're learning more about it every year. But I tell people now that I counsel for baptism, you are making a covenant with your creator. That's what you're doing when you're going to be baptized. You are making a solemn agreement, a covenant with your creator to give your life to God, to let the old self absolutely die and to come up to walk in newness of life. That's a covenant you make with a God who gives you life and breath. You ought to be able to say then, it's not my life. And mean it. And mean it, brethren. It's not my life. I've given my life to God. I've not done that perfectly at all. So I don't mean to brag, but I'm glad that I've had some good moments in my life. And I know on the old baptizing tours and many other times, I was only 21, 22, 23 years old. But we knew that we were God's servants out there all alone. And two young boys just of average size, and we had bigger men threaten us and break boards over us and throw rocks at us and cuss us and point guns at us. And we had to believe that Christ was alive and that we might be dead. We knew that. We tried to give our life to God. All during the summer of 1951, when I was 21 years old, I had not one single date. I always liked pretty girls. I am an evil man. I always liked pretty girls. I like to date, like to go to parties and it dances all through high school and junior college. I didn't have one single day. Didn't see one single movie. Didn't do anything fun, quote, unquote. We just were going and going and losing sleep all that summer of 51, all the summer of 1952, and all the summer of 1953. 
Our life was given to God. And we were not perfect, but in that particular situation, helped remind us of that. Then we could go back to college sometimes and still get involved in dances and dating and so on. But certain times in your life, you're in a situation where you could just focus on that. And I look back at that. I've never been sad that I missed on all those datings, all those dates and all those dances and going to the beach. The other kids had that summer staying at home or whatever. I'm glad I could go on those tours and give up all that. It's a one, most, some of the most wonderful times of my life. If you give your life to God all year long and learn to do it every day of your life, it doesn't mean you'll never have a date. I don't mean that. It doesn't mean you'll never go to a movie. It doesn't mean you'll never go to a dance. Although you'll go to very few movies anymore, they're getting worse and worse, as most of you know. Every, every uh, month, it seems, they're more rotten. But at any rate, you can have wonderful fun and should have some dates and wonderful fellowship with the opposite sex and have a beautiful wife or a handsome husband and wonderful children. God wants that for you. God's first command in the whole Bible, remember, was to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. So God's not against men and women loving each other. That was his first command. Love each other and have lots of kids. That's what he told them in plain language. He's not against that at all. But you give your life to God. You do it God's way. You do it God's way and within God's law, then you have perfect peace of mind because you're doing it God's way. You died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. If you give your life to God now... When that last trumpet sounds and the earth is shaking and the angels come down and the heavenly host and Christ comes, then you will be glorified and you will look back within a few minutes or hours after if you have time to think, wow, I'm glad I put God's kingdom first. Boy, am I glad I didn't drift off and get into fornication or drug addiction or adultery or drunkenness or lying or all this other stuff. You'll be so glad you can't stand it. Because you are willing to do it God's way. When Christ, who is our life, he is our life. In other words, whole Christianity involves around Jesus Christ. Christ is our life. He lives his life in us. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. You will suddenly burst forward with a spirit body shining like the sun in full strength. And unlike me, who these young men help to sit up up here, you'll have radiant energy. You'll jump up and down. I envy my, uh, I mean, I have terrible envy uh, with my granddaughter. She's here. She's probably listening to this. Brenna, David's little daughter, she's five years old, and she can hardly sit still. She's got so much energy when she goes around the house, she's literally jumping. She can't even stand still. If I just had one-third of her energy... Well, I would just give almost every dime I had if I just had one-third of her energy. Just go, go, go. Think of what I could do. <laughs> but at any rate, you you will have energy then as a spirit being. You'll never get tired. You will never get sick. You will never get in a bad attitude. You will be a glorified spirit being in the family of God forever. I'll tell you, that's really something to look forward to, brethren, to put ahead of everything else. And to make you want to say, I am a Christian. I'm going to be a real Christian. I'm going to be proud of Jesus Christ and say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And I'm going to give my life to God through him. And I mean it. 
Therefore, put to death your members on the earth, fornication. God's against young people jumping into bed with each other and sleeping around as they do and living with each other before marriage. Why? Is he against sex? No. As I said, he's all for sex in marriage. He wants us to have a family, but it just cheapens and you drag something through a sewer pipe and it comes out stinking on the other side. It just takes the whole edge of, off of it, the meaning off of it, everything. Fornication is wrong, uncleanness, all kinds of masturbation, pornography, foul movies, watching rotten stuff on the Internet, all of that, passion, evil desire and covetousness, just lusting after material things, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Yes, God will spank. He will punish those who get involved in those things in which you also once walked when you lived in them. Yes, these were carnal Greek-type people who were involved in the, in the various gods of the time, worshiping Diana of the Ephesians and all the other pagan gods. You walked and lived in that stuff, he said, which they certainly did. But now you must also put off all of these anger, Aside personal lusts, you also can have the wrong attitude of hate and resentment against others. Put off these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, blasting off your mouth with filthy language. Filthy language. Do not lie to one another since you put off the old man with his deeds. Some people lie and lie and they'll tell a lie with a straight face, and you'll never, the way they look, you're right straight in the eye, and lie and lie, you'll think, well, they must be sincere. And then you get to know them after a while, and you realize, no, they just don't get it. Lying is so much a part of their way of life that they don't feel any guilt about it. I have had to have a big wake-up call. I used to be the freshman Bible teacher, as I've said, and baptize hundreds of young ambassador students, and I baptized young men and young women by the dozens as they often would come to me first since I was their freshman Bible teacher. And I found that a lot of them, particularly the young women, could charm me so I didn't realize they were lying because I knew the men were bad. I've been a young man, so I figured them out. Most of them would have been, well, I've been pretty bad or I've done this and that, but the young women were so sweet and nice and friendly. You think, well, they've never done anything bad. Well, they might not have done some of the physical acts to the same extent that the young men had done in fighting or drunkenness or fornication or masturbation or all kinds of rotten stuff young men get into, but they had vanity, jealousy, lust and greed and personal selfishness and hatefulness and self-will, self-will to do what I want to do and to get their feelings hurt and go their own way. And I, because they were pretty young girls, I just let them, I didn't understand that. And they would sometimes lie and lie and lie even about some things they had done they actually had done, and I didn't realize it because they looked so sweet. I thought, well, they can't be looking at me with a sweet, open, wholesome look and be lying. Yes, they could. Yes, they could. That shocked me later because my first wife, Margie, did not lie. She was just wholesome and had a very wholesome look and a wholesome way of life. And Cheryl, my present wife, is the same way. They don't lie and lie and lie. Most of you know my sister, Mrs. Ames. She's always been a sweet person ever since she was born. She's just been a kind person, so she doesn't lie and lie and lie and tell you bad stuff. 
But lots of women can lie and lie, and they can be a very pretty young girl, and they can lie and lie. And young men then will brag and talk about stuff they didn't do at all and make them sound important ten times more than they really are. You know, if you're found out to be a liar, and then people find that out, then you say, I'm sorry. Well, they don't know whether you're sorry or not, because once you've started lying, you can't be sure. Do you follow me? Lying is a terrible thing in God's sight. And gross exaggeration is often a form of lying. Do not lie to one another since you put off the old man with his deeds. A true Christian does not lie. And it put on the new man who is renewed in the knowledge according to the image of him who created him. You're to have God's image, Christ's image, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, all of us, whether black, white, yellow, male, female, tall or skinny, whatever. If we have Christ in us, we're all spiritual Israelites and we're all members of God's family. So Christ is in all or is all and in all, it says. So Christ is it. He's to be in all of us. That's what makes us the Christians. Therefore, as the elect of God, beloved and holy, put on tender mercies. We've got to have, if we're Christians, tender mercies. Don't say, I got you. I had a very dear woman call me a liar more than once recently because she got all upset about certain things that uh, she thought. And my wife got upset at her in a sense because she called her husband a liar. Had no reason to say that at all. But it, it is just kind of weird. But put on tender mercies. If someone makes a mistake or a misstatement or doesn't mean something or else in this case just grossly misinterprets what is said, you better learn to cut the other person some slack. I remember Mr. Kevin Lee. Kevin will hear this tape later, I hope. But Kevin Lee uh, was telling me after this upset with the board way back in when we had the split with Global. And they said, well, I said certain things that weren't, they thought exactly right. But Mr. Lee said, well, they didn't want to cut you any slack at all. And that's true. If someone makes a little mistake or a misstatement or whatever, why, uh, you need to cut them some slack and not say gotcha if you make some slight misstatement. And I made very, very few of that so that they just wanted to twist something around. But you've got to be merciful. That's the key thing. Merciful. Kindness. A real Christian is kind. If Christ were here on earth, would everyone love him? No. They killed him. But brethren, he would be kind. He would be kind. In studying David, and his life, I've often emphasized the tremendous strength and, and uh, uh, courage of David, and the faith in God. He had so many wonderful, but you see all those men, David and his mighty men, it starts naming them. Why were those mighty men following him? Just because David was such a powerful warrior? No. Around the campfire at night and all the other times, David was probably, when he was not doing the battles of the Lord, when you understand and read the examples of David in other cases, he must have been a very kind man, a very kind man. I asked Mr. Hernandez to sit with me because my son with a little girl wanted to sit up high today, and it's fun to have someone sitting nearby, and I thought with all those places. So he sat with me. Well, Mr. Hernandez is a great, big, strong man, and he has one of the most powerful voices in the whole church of God. But he's also, as most of you know, a very kind man. 
And God looks on that. He wants us to be kind. Just if we're big and strong, that it meant bigger and I'm going to throw you through the wall. No, if you have that attitude, then God will throw you through the wall eventually. If I have that attitude, he'll throw me through the wall. He doesn't want us to go strutting around and showing if we're big and strong. Kindness is something God loves, frankly, as you read the Bible. And David must have had a lot of warmth, a lot of human warmth and kindness, praising Joab, Bishai, and all the mighty men around him and charmed them and made them love him because of his human warmth and personality as well as just being a mighty warrior with, with trust in God. Kindness, humbleness of mind, to learn to be genuinely humble. And most people aren't humble. Some of you old folks remember the old politician speeches. They're not quite so blatant about it anymore, but uh, the old politician would get up in his speech and say, My friends, in all humility, I accept your nomination. <laughs> in all humility. <laughs> well, if he was that humble, he probably wouldn't say it that way in the first place, of course. They're usually filled with a big bag of wind, of course. But you need to have genuine humility, not put on humility, but one who's willing to be corrected. Are you willing to be corrected? A true Christian is willing to take correction. A true Christian is willing to say, I'm sorry. A true Christian is willing to say, I apologize. A true Christian is willing to say, I'm, I'm wrong. Really, you've got to do that if you're a true Christian. Kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, which means teachable. Are you teachable? Oh, I know everything. I don't need anyone to tell me anything. Well, if you have that attitude, you're not going to be in God's kingdom. You've got to be willing to have others teach you things. I have Mr. Ames and Dr. Nail and our other leading men teach me things all the time. They'll bring out some technical point that I haven't thought of before, and I'll learn from them, and we learn from each other. We're a team. We're part of the body of Christ. We're to be teachable, each of us. And we've got to have that attitude of being teachable, long-suffering, put up with one another. So-and-so makes some mistakes. Well... Get over it. (laughs) Have long-suffering. God has had to be very long-suffering with me. And God has had to be very long-suffering, frankly, with all of you, whether you realize it or not. He's very long-suffering with all of us. So you must be. Anyway, that tells us, well, no, that's a little later here. Verse 13, uh, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. We've got to constantly forgive. A Christian will be willing to forgive, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you also must do. I've got to be willing to forgive others if they've harmed me or hurt me and forgive them. I would say in relation to the office jobs or the work, if someone is transferred from one job to another, that doesn't mean that I hate them or Mr. Ames hate them or Mr. Wakefield now is the office manager that he's down on them. That's not a lack of love. It's best to put square pegs in square holes and round pegs in round holes and put people where they fit. That's not a matter of personal offense or forgiveness. That's a matter of putting people where they are. If you love your children, you spank them. If you love your children, you have the one who's best to do one thing, do it, and the others do other things. That's just wisdom. That's not a matter of love one way or the other. You've got to figure that out, of course, what it means by forgive and love. Follow the Bible examples again. That shows you what you should do. 
I'm talking about being loving and merciful and kind. You say, well, boy, Jesus was just so loving and kind. He would never raise his voice and yell at people. Well, all you have to do is read Matthew chapter 23. You snakes, you vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Who is he talking to? Some bad guys in the back alley? No, he was talking to the religious establishment. He was talking to the religious leaders of his day, the scribes and Pharisees. You snakes, you vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Was Jesus a bad guy? No. He had righteous indignation. He knew these guys were so self-righteous and hard-headed. They wasn't going to hurt their little feelings. They weren't going to go home and cry. They were going, well, I don't like that. And it might make some of them think, though, and it might make others around them think, and it needed to witness to them and witness to the others hearing that what they were. And that's exactly what they were. And in love, he told them that. So loving correction is not a lack of forgiveness. It might help people to wake up, and then God would forgive them. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. So in everything, think about it, is this love? Am I correcting this person in love? Am I spanking my child in love? Am I making this decision in love? That's the key thing. And let the peace of God which uh, dwell in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Again, brethren, if you feed on this word, if you drink in of it, think about it, and say, this means me. This is Christianity in print. This is one of the best chapters in the Bible, Colossians 3, to describe some of these aspects of Christianity. So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Verse 17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name. Think about it. Everything you do, you can do in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. You don't need to be nicey-nice about everything you do. If you go out to play basketball in a correct Christian way, you might bump against the other guy occasionally. That's okay. Men enjoy that, kind of butting heads a little bit in a friendly way. You bump each other going up and so on and so forth. And, uh, and uh, you know, little boys love to wrestle together just to show their strength and test each other. That's fine. But you do it in love. You don't do it, I'm going to hurt you. You do it to win the game, but also to have fun and masculine uh, competition in the right way. You've got to be sure the motive is correct, though, and not trying to hurt the other person or take advantage of him in a wrong way. Whatever you do, do in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. When you court your future wife, you young men, do you have to keep her six feet away and and, uh, never get close to her till you're married? No, no. You can take her out for a date, and sometimes you could hold hands, or after you've got toward a quest, toward getting close toward marriage or engaged, you might give her a good night kiss. I don't want to make any of you faint, but I, 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 that's what I would do. I would give my future wife a good night kiss. I always did, and I didn't go to hell for that. 
But it doesn't mean you get in the back seat of the car and you writhe around and squeeze and hug and hug and squeeze until you get all sexually involved. That would be wrong. But to show a certain amount of affection, as I've told some of the guys, if I were dating a young woman to marry her and kissed her and she didn't kiss me back, then I would figure, well, she'd probably never want to marry me, you see. So that's, that's fine. That's up to her. But at any rate, you've got to, you've got to do it in the right way. You're not doing it against Christ. You're doing it simply to show affection to another human being that's beautiful to you. And certainly when you're married, you're going to be kissing each other. So, uh, just a good night kiss or two or something like that on occasion is not wrong before you're married. And, and, uh, but you do it in a right way and show love toward another human being. It's not wrong to show love to each other in all kinds of ways within God's law. Within God's law. If it doesn't arouse lust in you or in her and this kind of thing, do it in the name of Christ. Giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And that's an important thing. I remember when I was courting Cheryl, my present wife, I'd been so lonesome because Margie had died and I was so lonesome I couldn't stand it. And I would go up to Bakersfield and my courtship with her once I started dating her regularly, and after we got to really courting, she knew what was happening too, obviously. She wasn't de- dumb, deaf and dumb. But I would go up to Bakersfield two hours and, you know, 110 miles and bring her back to Pasadena. I'd drive up Friday afternoon. And then that night, I didn't want her to stay in a place where it might look suspicious or cost us money either necessarily, but I didn't want to make something look suspicious and so every other time she would come down, she would stay with Mrs. Apartian and Mrs. Mr. Apartian in their home, and they would be her chaperone, so to speak. They'd take care of her that night and then, and then for Saturday night. And then the next week, I would have her stay with Mr. and Mrs. Pate. What was his name? He was the barber anyway, and I can't remember. Patton. He was, her, Mrs. Patton was also from Bakersfield. And her husband was the college barber. She'd known them up in Bakersfield before they moved to Pasadena. So she stayed with them. And after our whole weekend together, where I would take her maybe to walk or brunch or something Sabbath morning, to church Sabbath afternoon or to dinner Saturday night, and then we'd go to Bush Gardens or Disneyland or Marine Land or up hiking in the mountains, something Sunday, then I'd drive her back Sunday night. And coming back Sunday night from Bakersfield seemed like it was always beautiful. I guess that's because I was dating her. It seemed beautiful. But often the, the, the sun and moon would be out, and I'd be driving back under the moonlight, and I would look out all alone, and I would thank God all the way. I think this beautiful young woman is coming along, and if I don't stumble too badly, she'll be my wife in a few months. You know what I mean? So I was doing it in the name of Jesus Christ. I was thanking God for that. And thanking God for guiding our courtship and our love for one another. And now she's been my wife for almost 34 and a half years. And I'm very grateful for her. But you want to try to do it in a way that honors God and yet rejoice in what God does give you. So you have to think of those things and do everything you do in the name of Jesus Christ. It says in verse 23, whatever you do, do it heartily. In other words, do it with your whole heart. As to the Lord and not to men. So if in your job, work hard. You people work in the work. Work hard. Put your heart in it and do the best job you can. And as you work elsewhere, do your best. Give God your best, not your worst. You're not to men, knowing that from the Lord 
you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. Christ is that Lord he's talking about. Christ is the Lord. He is the one you're serving, but Christ is all and in all, as it said back here in verse 11. Christ is everything. He's living his life in you. And so you want to try to reflect Jesus Christ in everything you think, in everything you say, in everything you do, and yet not be nicey-nice about it, not make up laws that God has not made up. And worldwide, we got to doing that, and Mr. Armstrong even had to pull back some of that stuff. We got too strict, and he realized we went overboard at times. I know when I went over to Brickett Wood as deputy chancellor, why some of them in Pasadena thought I was too strict, and over there they thought I was liberal because they had the ladies, the college girls, weigh in in front of Mrs. Horn, uh, the college uh, sort of warden, whatever they called her. And the fat girls had the weigh in. That was ridiculous, making embarrass, embarrassing situation for them. And then they had people on academic probation. They put their names up in the bulletin board in the dining hall. That another sort of embarrassing. That was stupid. And then they had uh, the rule that men could stay out until midnight on Saturday night, but the girls had to be in by 10 o'clock. Well, that was stupid, too. And then, of course, they let men wear, obviously, trousers, but women, they, they encouraged the women to wear dresses most of the time, which is good, but they had the teaching they could virtually never wear slacks. They called slacks trouser suits, not pantsuits, but trouser suits. And whole sermons were given against trouser suits. Well, God never said that. Women wearing slacks is not some abomination. It's not the very, very best thing to wear to church all the time. They're not quite as dressy and they're honoring of God in that way. But there are times in some of our halls or some women have certain physical problems where they might want to wear slacks in order not to be too cold if they're, if there's something like that, as long as it's a feminine cut in the slacks and it's not something they're wearing to special all the time or to special occasions. Again, God doesn't say thou shalt not wear slacks. God does not say you shall not kiss your wife before you marry her. God does not say, you know what I mean, all this stuff we have rules about. We're adding to God's word unnecessarily. And sometimes after a point, if we keep on, it makes us look ridiculous. We're going to let us be persecuted for the right reason, not for the wrong reason, because we've gone way beyond what God has said. Anyway, we want to get all this straight and know what true Christianity is all about. So remember to keep all these things in mind. You serve the Lord Christ, for you will receive the reward of the inheritance from Christ. He is in charge. He is the one who lives in you, if you, of course, are a real Christian. Now, brethren, back in Acts 11, let's turn back there for a moment. Acts chapter 11 is something I hope all of us are familiar with, and I thought I should not leave this out because I think it's, in a sense, as you understand it, think about it, very touching. We tend to just take this kind of thing for granted. I put this in a little bit late and don't even have a special marker for it, but here we are. Acts chapter 11, talking about Paul and Barnabas. And it says in verse 25, Then Barnabas who was converted first, remember, Paul began to persecute the church, and Barnabas brought him to the apostles. Paul departed to Tarsus to seek Saul, Saul who became the apostle Paul. 
And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. That's the place they were first called Christians. Now, the word Christian is mentioned only two other times in the Bible. I'm not going to turn to those places today. But let us be called Christians. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Are you a Christian? Can you say, I'm proud to be a Christian? I'm proud to be a follower of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I want him to live his life within me. That's the key thing, brethren, and that's the approach we must have in all these things. Notice back in Galatians chapter 5, now if you would, Galatians uh, chapter 5. It says here in verse uh, 22, the fruit of the Spirit. So here's Christ living in you is love. You're to have love, which is outflowing concern, joy, have joy. Try not to just be sad all the time. Peace, because you're doing it God's way. You love God. Your life is His. You put your life in His hand. And then you have the peace of God, which passes all understanding. Long-suffering. You're willing to suffer long with others and not get upset about little stuff. Kindness. A personal kindness to others. Goodness. You want to be good and right and clean. Faithfulness. You put your faith and trust in God and walk and live by faith. Gentleness. You're not mean and pushy in a wrong way. Self-control. You've got to control yourself. If some of you can't drink just one or two glasses of wine and always stop right there, then don't drink any wine. Just give it up. Self-control. If some of you can't stop after kissing a girl once, then don't kiss anyone at all. Have self-control. But if you can do those things within God's law, do it within God's law the right way without getting buggy one way or the other. Self-control against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us all walk in the Spirit. We've got to walk that way, not just talk about it, but do it. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So we've got to have that genuine attitude of love and outflowing concern, forgiveness, and all of that. One Old Testament scripture that grabs my mind a lot is I often read the book of Proverbs along this particular line. It's, it's right in Proverbs, which is more just about general wisdom. But notice Proverbs chapter 19. Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 22. God says here in this book, What is desired in a man is loving kindness. The footnote shows the Hebrew says literally loving kindness. That's the most desirable quality. What is desired just in human relations. If a person has that warmth, that Gentle, gentle, outgoing concern that comes out from them, loving kindness. Think about the people that have helped you the most, that you're the most comfortable around, not people that are really strict trying to catch you at something, not trying to put you down about something, even though they might have the truth, but people that have loving kindness. That must have been part of David's personality. 
even though, of course, he did some really strong things as a warrior, <laughs> but around those other men that loved him so much were willing to give his life for him, he must have had a lot of loving kindness and personal charm. Loving kindness. And a poor man is better than a liar. Of course, God hates lying. So think about that. This trait is very important in being a Christian, loving kindness and having that aspect. All right, let's turn to John 15, brethren. Turn with me now at this point to the 15th chapter of the book of John. John 15, verse 1. Here are the direct words of Jesus Christ. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bring forth more fruit. Sometimes he will prune us. If we don't bear any fruit, he may cast us away. But if he knows we can do better, he may cause us to lose our job. He may cause troubles to come on us. He may cause physical afflictions or illness to come on us. He may help us get into big trouble and be deeply corrected and shaken by something. He corrects us in some way to prune us. He's pruning the vine so we can produce more fruit. He doesn't hate us. He just wants us to do better. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. Yes, there it is again. Galatians 2.20. Christ in you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. You've got to abide in Christ and have Christ live his life in you in every part of your life. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. It's Christ bearing the fruit through this work. It's Christ bearing the fruit through our leading men who are so dedicated. It's Christ bearing the fruit through all of you as a team. He's bearing the fruit. We're very weak, but he can use us powerfully if we'll let him and cry out to him. If anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and withered, and they gather them and throw them to the fire, and they're burned. The evil ones are eventually burned clear up. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, and brethren, you have to study this word. Don't add to what God says. Add all kinds of do's and don'ts that God does not give at all. But don't take away from what God says. Have God's words permeate your thoughts and your decisions and your life. And my words abide in you. You will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. God will hear our prayers more and more if we have Christ's words abiding in us. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. Do you want to bear much fruit? Do you want to be a genuine Christian? Do you want to be someone God will really honor in tomorrow's world? A real Christian who's able to say, I'm proud, I'm grateful, I'm thrilled to be a Christian and to have Jesus Christ living his life in me. Be that kind of Christian. Seek for that. Study, meditate, pray, fast about that. Give your life to God and say, I do not have a life. My time belongs to God. My talents belong to God. My money belongs to God. My life belongs to God. Everything I have belongs to God. 
It belongs to Jesus Christ. And I want him to live his life in me because I want to be a real Christian.